Yet another episode of the ladies' room, Jane. We seem to be back to doing these fast and furiously, back to back to back to back again. But we've got so much stuff going on that we want to talk about. Um, we're just firing these things off so that we can get them out there before news breaks and changes, and we have to do it all over again. There's a lot going on in the world of sports right now, as you may be aware. So I think it gives us a lot of opportunity to talk about some good things happening in the news. And the first thing I think we probably should talk about is we have a Super Bowl matchup. Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes. We're going to get the whole narrative about the changing of the guard, the passing of the torch again. The passing of the grass from the old goat to the young goat. Yes, the passing (laughs) of the concussion water and the supplements and strawberries cause you to not be able to play until you're 50. So that's going to be fun. Yeah, but I mean, the, it's a it's a great matchup. It's a really good storyline going in. It makes, you know, this has been a really difficult environment for journalists, I think, to be able to, you know, you can't establish relationships in the same way. You can't maintain relationships in the same way. You're not running into anybody and picking up stories here and there. The Super Bowl is going to be completely different. You know, usually in a Super Bowl, you are, you're finding things out just by being out and about. And that's going to be completely different this year. And um and I and I think it really, you know, in some ways it's helpful to have to have such a ready-made storyline where you have two very well-known quantities in Mahomes and Brady and the interest of the matchup where you really do think you have, you know, the one of the legends of the game versus a, a real, you know, somebody who could who could have that same sort of career. And and so to me. Not only is it interesting for fans at homes, but I, I, at home, not Patrick Mahomes. I'm getting, I'm getting my homes. Patrick's homes also. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting for them. But I think that it's um, I think that it's something that will be, you know, it will be a a good a a good easy lift in some ways. You don't have to necessarily, um, you know, approach this in a more tactical way. The story is right there for you. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting, especially watching the Packers match up with the Bucks yesterday, because it just goes to show the NFC North has pretty much been trash all season long. <laughs> and every year it's been trash pretty much recently. And then we get this narrative about how great the Packers are. And now you see what the Packers are when they match up against a team that is a little bit tougher than some of their opponents. And I, I think we are going to talk about that Matt LaFleur deciding to kick a field goal rather than going for it on fourth down in mm. perpetuity because yeah. I was like, what are you doing? I mean, if you can't go for it on fourth down in the NFC championship game with Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback, when are you going for it? There was that. And then there was the weird decision on defense at the end of the first half that where Brady ended up scoring again. Um yeah. And and I just so there were a couple of decisions, you know, that was in terms bad of, coverage, man. That was just a bad. Who called that, Mike right. Pettin? I Mike Pettin, former former Jets, former former Jets. <laughs> he should have been fired at halftime. Well, <laughs> but I just I'm saying. So even though you have Tom Brady throwing three interceptions in the second half, it's not enough. It's not enough to lose the game, which is unusual, right? Because I think everybody was ready to, you know, really to 
really heap praise on Brady, but then when you throw a lot of picks, it's hard to keep that energy going. Yeah, that's true. And I'm just thinking, you know, the Bears beat the Bucks and Tom Brady. The the backers couldn't do it. It's sort of mind blowing. And then after the game, you have Aaron Rodgers being like, "Well, it wasn't my decision." Talking about the decision to kick the field goal, and I was like, "Uh oh, here we go." <laughs> Aaron yeah, Rodgers exactly. is now upset at his head coach. But you there know, after the some, go ahead, there will be some discussions in that locker room later about about just exactly what people should say out loud after a game like that. Yeah. I have a feeling Aaron's going to cut a few more people out of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I. You know, after the game, and it may have just been the the you know coming down from from that game, um, but Aaron Rodgers sounding maybe like someone who's not sure if he's going to be back next year. Now he's got a long time left on his contract, so I can't imagine. You know, I, I don't think he's going to retire, but he sure sounded like he was maybe thinking along those lines. Well, this has been a year where you have you have a lot of players who are talking about how they don't want to play for their current teams anymore. And I think, I mean, I don't, I kind of don't know what to make of it. And I, I wonder if it doesn't have to do with just what a weird year this has been. And it, you know, with the coronavirus and the restrictions and the way that teams have to interact with each other and play together, I just don't wonder if it, you know, if there isn't something about the way that this season has affected people where it's causing more friction than usual or... Yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm just trying to figure that out because I cannot remember a year where they have so many players openly talking about wanting to get off of their current team. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, we have, you know, you talk to people in the industry who are covering these games and behind the scenes, people have sort of expressed not being real thrilled with the coronavirus protocols and that there's been a good show by the NFL. And, you know, they've got all their announcers talking about what a great job they've done with coronavirus. But I think a lot of people who have actually covered the games, and I'm assuming the players as well, maybe don't necessarily feel like the NFL has done a great job. And I think that takes a toll on you. And then you have a loss on top of it. And I mean, who among us doesn't wake up every day and be like, why am I doing this? I'm sure Aaron Rodgers has those days too. Well, a hundred percent. And I, and I think also with, you know, Certain players being available for certain games, certain games being in question, some games being moved. I just think it's been a really stressful year for these players. And I also think, and you know, we can talk about this week and, and next week, but but the Super Bowl is going to be really different. And, you know, there the the last couple of weeks, you know, as the coronavirus has gotten worse and the vaccine has started to be given and then not so much being given because of a lack of supply in some areas. Um you know, you have had more fans in the stands and they've been selling more tickets yes. for these games. And I think that's problematic. And I and you know that the, the league has come out and said, we're going to have, you know, we're giving all these tickets away to first responders who've been vaccinated, which is, you know, I, I suppose the best possible scenario for having fans in the stands. First of all, you have to wonder whether or not they've had their second dose and, and had the time required since their second dose to be fully um to to gain as much immunity as possible before sitting in the stands. And, and I would doubt that that's the case, but I don't know it to be the truth. But also that's not going to be all of the fans in the stands. Uh, and I just don't, I don't like the way the league is budging it. It's uncomfortable for me because I think it's a risk to public health that doesn't need to be taken right now. But I, I agree. Um, yeah. So, but, but there's no stopping them. They're doing it. And that's kind of been the approach to the entire season. And I imagine if you're a player where the approach is, we're not stopping, we're doing it. And too bad if you're not happy with the fact that, you know, all of the offensive linemen on your team are not going to be there protecting <laughs> you. You're going to have a backups. Then too bad. You know, I imagine that would be a tough, that would be a tough year to get through. 
Yeah, I think it's been hard on athletes, just like it's been hard on everybody. Can we just talk about the number of people Kansas City had in the stands? That looked like a lot of people. And when they pulled the camera back and showed the crowd, I was like, whoa. Um, I mean, it was that way from the beginning. You know, I mean, we saw the people in the stands in week one in Kansas City. Incidentally, they booed the moment of unity before then going into the tomahawk chop, (laughs) which is talk about uncomfortable, man. Oh, I was shocked to see that many people. I know you're outdoors, but also the guy who's advising the NFL and doing the testing, coordinating the testing for all these teams and stuff was on CNN. And he just kept talking about how it's safe because it's outside and blah, blah, blah. And he got like zero pushback from anybody on this. And so I feel like the NFL is just blindly following their own like Scott Atlas guy. (laughs) And in the meanwhile, there's like how many people were in the stands yesterday in Kansas City? It looked like a lot. Well, one of their, one of, one of the NFL's big people on that has said, it's so great that they haven't had any trend. They haven't had any verified transmission in the stands, which is fabulous. But you know, you can say that for the smoothie King down the street too, because nobody knows where they caught it. Yes. You can't tell. There's no way to verify whether it was caught or not caught in, in a particular place. The coronavirus doesn't tap you on the shoulder and say, hello, I'm going into your nasal passages right now. Make sure <laughs> you make be, a note of that it. That would be uncomfortable and awkward. <laughs> I would have a little <laughs> conversation, you know. Um, but but so so I think it's absolutely just completely inappropriate to say that. It can't be proven scientifically. So it's an it's a you know, it's a it's a spin rather than science. And so when you have somebody who's making policy decisions when it comes to what kind of interactions people are having, when you have those people spinning you on a piece of science that can no longer that cannot be verified or disproven uh it's disturbing and so they've just basically as the years gone along i think they started off with a good set of protocols with an idea of what they wanted to do and then they started to throw caution to the wind they're like we're getting through the season and that's that and so now you have a situation where you have a full you know a relatively full a two full four conditions stadium watching that game yesterday and and i you know i don't know it's you know it's like so much of what's happening now um, you see it, you make a note of it. There's nothing you can do about it because these leagues and these teams are, they're getting their money and that's that. Yeah. And not to pick on Kansas city because the bills mafia tailgaters in the parking lot with no masks on were just as bad. Um, you know, I, I keep saying on Twitter, I really believe that at some point someone's going to do some kind of study on how insisting on having all these sports contributed to the spread of this thing. And I don't think it's going to be good. I mean, I still have parents at my high school screaming about football season being canceled, trying to re-up football again in the spring. None of these kids have been vaccinated. None of these parents have been vaccinated. And yet here we are. And I just think it's really, you know, the money is one thing, but there's also this um, idea, even among amateur teams, that like, we deserve this. We have to have this. Like, heaven forbid we have a season where our kids don't get to play football. Like, it's just become, sports have just, become this thing in the pandemic that we demand on having and we're putting all these people at risk and God knows what it's doing to this spread in the community. And it's, you know, it's at this point, I'm just exhausted by it. Like back in the spring, I was like arguing with people about it. And now I'm just to to unfriending people on, on Facebook because I, I just, I don't understand this way of thought. And I'm a person who makes a living off of sports. Well, and, and, you know, you and I've talked about this before. I feel like sports are the ultimate in community and teamwork. And now this has shown that it's actually the ultimate in selfishness. 
And, and unfortunately, that's been our national approach to this. And the way that you know that it contributes to community spread is that we have 400,000 people plus dead in this country. No other country is suffering from this the way that we are. And the reason for nobody, no other country is having the consistent difficulty with spread that we are. And it's because we've put person before community. And that is an incredible, painful thing to realize. And there's nothing but, you know, you are only as strong as your weakest link. And we have a lot of very weak links in this country. And unfortunately, I think our professional sports leagues have promoted that mentality. But we have a Super Bowl coming, Julie. Such good times ahead. We do. We have a Super Bowl. Uh, You know, I'm not the biggest Tom Brady fan, so I was kind of like, oh, Tom Brady again. But no matter how someone someone tweeted yesterday, the best tweet said, uh, like, do I like Tom Brady as a person? No. Can I put that aside and appreciate his athletic ability and skill? Also, no. And I was like, that is me. (laughs) That is exactly how I feel about Tom Brady. Oh, Um, that is funny. Who on the sidelines, extremely on brand after the game was like the only person who didn't have a mask on again because the rules don't apply to Tom. Yeah, but he hugged his son. That was such a sweet moment. I, I, I mean, I kind yeah. of, I kind of forgave him for, and I, and I'm with you. I'm not. He also brought you know, Antonio covered, Brown to live into his house. It was his wife and daughter because he needs to catch bought footballs from him. But you know what? If I just sit around and and think about that all the time, I could never watch sports generally, especially having covered the Jets for so many years and been just had a front row seat to <laughs> seeing Tom Brady mop mop up the Jets every. Well, no, that's not true. The Jets did win in 2009 in um in, uh, at Gillette's stadium in the AFC championship. That was a, that was a, that was a, an anti-Brady moment. The one Jets really, truly anti-Brady moment. But, um, but other than that, it's just been, I've had a front row seat to this career. As a matter of fact, I covered his first game when, um, what was it? Drew Bledsoe was injured yep. and he came in and that was actually, he was playing the Jets that day. And, uh, he came in, he was wearing like a tweed jacket, a tweed, like little cap, like little newspaper boy cap type nice. thing. He was he was quintessential New England young man, circa like eighteen thirty. <laughs> He's a newsies. He was the newsies essentially. <laughs> did yeah. you, you did you cover him at the combine when he stood there awkwardly in his underwear and that picture I will <laughs> never get enough of? <laughs> I did not. I was uh, no only just, only only fully clothed for me. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, in in his in his his apparel, his his dress apparel. Nice. But, yeah. But anyway, yeah. So I feel like I've had a, I've had the long view on the Tom Brady career, and, um, and so it's been, it's been interesting to see for sure. Uh, and so maybe I don't have the same distaste for him that you do, but I, I see your point on on where you're coming from. But it would be really tough for me to because I've just I'm amused on him at this point, having having so many you know witnessed so many Jets tears uh, at the hand of Tom Brady. <laughs> huh. He just yeah. seems like the most unlikely guy too, like. Like, look at that picture of him at the combine and then be like, this is the greatest quarterback of your generation. And be like, really? That guy? Okay. <laughs> anyway, we've got lots more stuff to talk about because uh, we are going to find out relatively soon, I hope, if we're going to have an Olympics or not. We're going to talk with our guest, Mary Carrillo, coming up right after this. Be right back. We're so excited to welcome in our next guest. When we started talking about this podcast and we were doing our shortlist of dream people we wanted to have on, she was right at the top. 
Uh, former champion tennis player. Uh, you know her from covering the tennis and the Olympics for NBC. Also on the, for my money, best sports show that has ever existed, Real Sports. And as we were just discussing, has also done Westminster, which has got to be the highlight of anyone's sports career. It is the fantastic Mary Carrillo. How are you doing, Mary? Good morning, you two. And may I tell you that I'm honored to be on it because I've been listening to your podcast and you've had Jamel Hill, who is like a great American. Uh, yes. And you've had Martina Navratilo. You've had so many good guests. I am proud to be among them. And I have to tell you, Julie, I got sent uh, a copy of your book, Sidelined. You did. I sure did. And I read it in the, I read almost straight through. Um, it's terrific. And oh, it, Mary, that means so, so much. So, geez, Jane, have you read this thing yet? I am waiting for my copy to arrive. Oh, I, well, I am. I am absolutely looking forward to because I read Julie a lot and have listened to her for years. And honestly, that's the reason I joined Deadspin was to do this podcast with her. So, <laughs> like, like you, Mary, I am full of respect for the work that Julie has done. You it, guys, no, no, I, Julie, I mean it. It's a, it's a remarkable book, and I, and you've gone through so much and i have to tell you as someone who over the years has been i've been asked by just about everyone i've ever worked for to join social media and i'm not on any of it um if there were an anti-social media outlet that i could somehow monetize i would do that but, <laughs> but i can't figure out how to make how to turn a profit on that idea but i have <laughs> to ask you both i mean how do you put yourself out there like that and and not just want to throw banana cream pies in everybody's face. Well, I think that's the thing. You know, I think that when you get to a certain level of success, and I, I was thinking about this before when I was noticing you weren't on Twitter, that, that you can sort of float above the fray. But I think those of us that haven't reached that level don't really have a choice. Would you agree, Jane? I mean, it's the, it's the way to push your work out there. I yeah, I mean, I joined in 2008 when I was beat writer for the Jets. And I really did feel like it was... It was actually a really good tool. First of all, the harassment issue was not as what it is today back then. And I was able to engage with Jets fans on a daily basis. What do you care about? Who do you want to hear more about? Like, you know, what are the what are the stories you're interested in? You know, what kind of you know, what would you like to know more about schematically um, or coaching approaches or something like that? And I could really take that and I would take that into the locker room then do some reporting on it. And it ended up being really helpful. And um, and actually, some of those relationships, people I met in real life, you know, at games, tailgating, something like that, meet up with Jets fans. And it, it ended up being, you know, super helpful. Plus, you're like finding out right away things that are happening. Um, no, no. I, I Look, I applaud anybody who's on it. And I know it's a smart thing to do. Um, I'm either old school or just old. Um, but in my, even in my dotage, I'm coming to understand the value of it. I just really don't, I'm, I'm really, I just don't want to do it because there's so much abuse, especially among women. No, a hundred percent. And I think that that's actually gotten worse. And I think, you know, Twitter at some point made a decision and in, in most social media that we were just supposed to absorb whatever we got. And that was on us. And we had to deal with it by ourselves. And that I think is where things went left because yeah. that led to that's, you know, a lot of problems stem from that. Um, kind of letting people deal with harassment on their own. And that's kind of what we do in society. So it kind of mirrors the culture, except the opportunity to reach out directly to people and just be absolutely vile to them is much greater on social media. Yeah. Yeah. So I block a lot. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> block, block. Yeah. 
Yeah, I block a lot of people. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I always hope that I, I get to the point, like when Lindy West left Twitter, I was like, because, you know, she's got enough people promoting her work. I was like, God, I hope I get to that point someday where I can just walk away from this whole thing and rely on other people to do it for me. But, you know, until you get there, it's sort of where you got to be. Yeah. Well, as I said, I really, uh, I, there, there was, it's a very powerful book. I hope, I hope a lot of people get to read uh, what you typed. Thank you, Mary. That means so much to me. You guys, I'm from the Midwest. I'm so uncomfortable with compliments. I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> we will be typing this up and putting it as a huge blurb on her book, by the way. This is, this is, this is going on the front. This quote is going on the front of the book, Julie. Right? Uh, right. I mean, absolutely. I'm going to be on the phone with my publisher the minute we get off. Can we put Mary's quote on the book. <laughs> oh, um, God. So, Mary, you know, the Olympics are in the news right now. Um, we had the story come out yesterday about Japan secretly saying they need to be canceled, though they won't say it publicly. Are we going to have an Olympics? Uh, I I still don't know. And I'm supposed to be there. <laughs> um, so that's not uh, ideal. Um, even last year when I worked for NBC, um, I've done... I've done 14 Olympics. 11 of them have been with NBC. And I had already shot a couple of features two years ago. Uh, I did a salute to cherry blossom season. Uh, Nice. I I learned how to be a sumo wrestler, which is very informative and educational for all of you. And uh, I did a... Can you use you two weeks ago? What? Can you use you two weeks ago? At the Capitol. Capitol. Oh, God. Defending the nation. Don't let me commence. I also, hey, by the way, I also learned uh, about samurai. So yes, I could have been very helpful. And may I tell you (laughs) that apart from the closest people in my family, you are the first two people I've spoken to since the inauguration. And like, I just stopped openly weeping about 45 minutes ago. I mean, I just, just, that was so powerful. Everything about it really knocked me down. it was just very moving, and, and the columns of the Capitol looked taller to me. <laughs> I, I That place had become such a, a stony fortress, and now it looks a lot prettier. You just remember all over again how, how, how grand that place is, the physical place of it, you know? For sure. So so that was and, and the policy changes that have been coming out about some things that we care about, whether it's, you know, Title IX and kind of reinforcing the protections for Title IX, for LGBT, dropping a Muslim nation ban, things like majority Muslim country ban. I mean, things like that are, are deeply meaningful for people who care about equity and care about inclusion. And I think that, you know, that kind of just heightens that sense. Yeah, I think so. And and honestly, and I'll get back to the Olympics, because, and although I'm telling you right now, I don't know if I'm going there or not, but... Um, and I love tennis. I mean, it's the only sport I'm truly fluent in. And when it when it was gone for months, and then I had no appetite for the exhibition tennis. It just didn't mean anything to me, especially during last summer mm-hmm. when the, the politics was so riven with animus and 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 just I, that had become to me the politics of this country had become a blood sport, and I really stopped caring about my own sport and it was that had never happened to me before so i'm really hopeful that with the vaccine or more importantly with vaccinations uh this this time around this year we can get back to it but it it seems like just watching my world with tennis trying to pull off the australian open has become so complicated 
So the idea that 15,000 athletes and coaches are going to make their way to Japan in just a couple of months, it just seems like a, what a long shot, you know, to make it, to make it safe and, and to make it fair. There are, there are players, tennis players who are under strict quarantine right now in Australia uh, who aren't allowed to leave their rooms at all. Unlike the other players who have came through safely, were not on planes where someone had COVID. Um, they've been they've been able to work out and play and eat somewhere for five hours a day. So it's right now it's it's a very lopsided situation for about half the draw. So okay, even if they pull it off, is that what's that going to look like? How are they going to accommodate that? So maybe the players who didn't get to train for two weeks maybe they get to play when it's not so hot out because australia gets hot and clammy you know i mean there are things you can do but i'm already wondering i'm starting to care the good news is i'm starting to care about tennis again <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a plus yeah i'm starting to, to be energized uh by the sports world again and i feel like the country is calm enough so i can actually pay some attention to that did you two go through any of that last year Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me just tell you, we actually did some research at Marist because Marist, the Marist poll is part of the school. And, and just for our listeners, I'm the director of the Center for Sports Communication. And so I worked with the poll people to put together a, a viewer kind of questionnaire about like, you know, because ratings were down. And so why were they down? People assumed that when the sports were back, ratings would be through the roof because everybody's home. Right. Uh, and that didn't happen. And why was that? And I think, Mary, you really hit, you hit on one of the big reasons was that our, 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 our brains were filled with concerns about our health and about our country and about the, you know, the protests, whether you are angry about them or you feel like they are a national purging that we need. Hmm. Um, and I think people really had a hard time thinking that sports were the most important thing in their lives. No. Sports are a distraction. And from like the, you know, from our regular lives, when we feel good about the way our lives are going. And I think you're right. I think when we feel like things are chaotic and out of control, you're not going to lose yourself in a game where there aren't fans in the stands or where, you know, a game's been canceled or you don't think um, players like for, in the case of college football are being treated in a way yeah. that is good for them. You know, yeah. it's like, I, I mean, I said this are you going to watch somebody smoke for two hours on TV? Like, is that, are that enjoyable? You know, you kind of like, maybe you'll like it, but you know, somebody's going to kill themselves. So it's less fun. And I think that, I think that's a big part of it. Also, when you see like, a, like the Adria tour where Novak Djokovic and everybody gets sick because they're all idiots. And, you know, this is the thing. You're only strong as your weakest link that's with all of these things, whether it's the Olympics or whether it's tennis. And, um, and I, so I think that's, we kind of, you're watching it in a different way. It's engaging yeah. a different part of you. And I don't know that you necessarily are going to relax by sitting down and worrying about whether people are going partying after, or if somebody's going to be transmitting a virus, or if this is going to make a local community less safe. So to me, or, or just seeing the naked economics of it all, you yeah. know, when the, in the part of some leagues, it's less fun. I, I mean, I thought. Well, it's interesting. I did this this year, and I didn't work that much last year. Um, but I did two dog shows. Uh, I'm hoping that Julie DeCaro's parents watch them. One of them <laughs> is the National Dog Show, which it's is sure they watched. It's held. <laughs> it's held on Thanksgiving Day, and I, I'm not lying when I tell you it's apart from the Olympics. It's the 
the event that has more eyeballs on it than anything I've ever worked for. Like 30 million people watch the national dog show because it's after the parade and before football. And, and because the football game got canceled that night, it was on again in prime time. So I did the national and that one had no fans and there were cardboard cutouts, which I think is a little cheesy, but whatever. Um, and then I did the AKC national championships in Orlando and I wasn't even allowed. They were so careful. It's a huge event at that big old convention center. And I wasn't allowed inside. A couple of people were inside uh, working at it and calling it. Um, but you had to basically show your dog and then get out of, out of there. There were 4,000 dogs competing. That's a, that's a lot of dogs. 4,000 dogs competing at the AKC and no fans, which to my mind has become like the perfect canine to human ratio. <laughs> I had no problem with that. <laughs> Do you think the dogs noticed? I mean, they've got to be used to hearing a big cheer when they run out there, the champions. Yeah. I, Cause dogs really, who the hell knows what dogs are thinking. <laughs> I mean, all they're looking for is treats. You know, they know they're making their, their, their owner, handler, trainer happy. So, I mean, there they and and the thing is it it looked it, it looked great and you can obviously pump in noise i was interested i was watching uh the figure skating last weekend i don't know how much of it you guys watch i love figs but the fact that you know and there was there were a lot of a lot of people were falling down and you know skis flying around on their keisters you know it wasn't there wasn't a lot of top-notch performances but i've covered figs and i know that when somebody falls when somebody slips and the fans exhort them to keep going and catch up with the music and do all that. The absence of that really struck me and really bothered me. Because what the worst thing in the world, is, I mean, that's a hard sport to fail in because it's so obvious, you know, you can't fake it. And then like sometimes, you know, you know, gymnasts will have a, a, a terrible go of it and then they'll throw their hands up in the air anyway. Like, that was great, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, like, oh, hey, hey. Um, but in things you can't fake it. And I think the lack of fans at events like that, where you really can be helped, um, by the fans, boy, I really felt it watching that. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, it, it is a totally different environment and you're right. There's a, there's an energy between fans and, and athletes mm. that can't, can't be duplicated. And that's why I think that fake fan noise is so obnoxious but i do wonder also westminster is a great event and when i used to teach up at columbia we would have a sports class at the graduate school up there we would have our students go and cover it they would always be able to get you know put aside two or three credentials and that was the you know because it's a sporting event and that was the very best thing people loved covering that more than anything else and um and i do think they probably wonder you know without fans there to cheer them on these dogs are wondering whether they're still a good boy Oh, I know. Oh, like, no, I Jane. Oh, no. Terrible to think about. <laughs> it's it's a good, honestly, I I, um, I don't know. I wasn't allowed inside either one of the fanless ones that I, I covered this year. So I'm not sure. But normally, the, you know, you get to go in the benching area of these dog shows. And it's where all the dogs are getting primped and preened and fluffed up and and they're all so damn good. My dogs are all idiots. I've never had a sensible dog. And they're all, no one's barking at each other. No one's trying to sniff each other. I mean, it's really very, <laughs> very civilized. Very civilized <laughs> for dogs. 
And I do, what you ask is, is a fair question. Do they miss all that? But I have a feeling, I mean, most dogs, they're pretty loyal to their people. So I think they were able to, to tough it out. I think that's my guess. Yeah. Um, I do. I want to get back to the Olympics for a second, just because it's such an odd position to be in for a broadcaster. Mm -hmm. It is devoting so many, so much resource in resource to an event like the Olympics. You know, you pull out of the stops, you hire a ton of researchers, you have pods in New York and pods on site. Um, how the, the, will they or won't they Mm. aspect of it has got to be, especially after last year too, has got to be really challenging to deal with. Um, and how, how do you, how do you manage that? You know, even, uh, I, even last summer when I was supposed to go, um, it was going to be a much smaller footprint, physical footprint on NBC. There were going to be, you know, a, a lot fewer people because, uh, NBC has got this tremendous, uh, studio set up in Stanford, Connecticut. They've got seven different studios and a lot of stuff you can do like that. I've got to tell you, Jane, that I covered the tennis in Rio, uh, and I was the only one in Rio from my group. I will tell you this story now. At the time, we weren't mentioning it to anybody. but And not only the IBC, the International Broadcast Center, was a, a, a less than 10-minute walk from the tennis center. I wasn't even at the tennis. I was at the IBC in this tiny little room, and I was talking to my fellow announcers, Renee Stubbs, Paul Anacone, they were in Stanford, Connecticut. We had a camera hookup, okay? And and there was no delay. And because we could see each other, we didn't step all over each other. And tragically, it worked great. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Because we, we're seeing this mm-hmm. in baseball and football. We're seeing it all. This remote broadcasting has been going on in soccer for a while. They did it for the World Cup. Yeah. I mean, if it's sort of like working from home, if if this works, exactly. are we going to see people going back to cover it, things live? It's so much safer. It's so much cheaper. I did the French Open this fall, again, for NBC. Dan Hicks and I were in the Stanford studio. The third member of our broadcast team, John McEnroe, was in Malibu at his house. <laughs> That's just obnoxious. obnoxious. <laughs> well, that goes without saying. <laughs> but to get back to the story... And again, it was the same thing where we had to make sure we were all hearing each other and there wasn't a delay. And then we had these big old monitors and, you know, John had a nice hookup in his house. And at the end, we were, we were doing eight days of coverage of the French Open. It happens to be one of my favorite events. Uh, Paris has a lot to do with that. But anyway, at the end of the show, our producer, John McGinnis, comes into the studio and says, hey, guys, that worked out pretty well. Oh, no. And I said to John, we're never going back to Paris, are we? <laughs> Mary, Mary, you got to sell this. Like, you know, where are you going to get your information, though? See, like running into yeah. people out at yeah. last in the night in the cafes. You're finding out so much information from people, the scuttlebutt. Mm-hmm. It informs your coverage. It informs the way you call it. This is a fine stopgap, but you've got to get back to Paris. I, <laughs> you've got to. I, I cannot agree with you more. Um, I, and you're right. And I'm one of those people like I hang around that. That's my that's what I do. I mean, I when I am when I'm working for somebody, you know, you got, me. you know, I'll give you everything. I, and I like hanging around. I like watching practice. I like this going to the press conferences. I like, you know, talking to talking to my cohorts, you know. 
you come to the you come to the press room all the time at Wimbledon. That's how I like. That's well, how I try to. A lot of times I'm on the air, so you have to miss it. So you have to read the transcripts, which isn't the same thing. But anytime I can hustle around and get into those press, I want to. Of course, I want to be there. And you know, I'll raise my hand and you know ask a goofy question just to you know whatever. But um, I enjoy that. I I do. I I enjoy that life. And and I again, even when it comes back, I'm not sure in what form. You know how much a lot of my friends are uh, are hurting. A lot of them don't have any. You know, it's it's hard if you've got to pay your own way to Australia and try to you know try to sell stories. There's some Americans over there, Jane, as you know, including Karen Krauss. Good old yes. out there. Yeah, Karen. Just love her story. Quarantine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I my and I I try to stay in touch with them and you know cheer them on and make them laugh and. Yeah, it's rough out there. Well, I mean, the tennis industry has been, for reporters, just like the media business generally, is really t- it's it's been very hard hit by the pandemic, and mm-hmm. and so you know, I think we all want sports to come back and be strong and thrive, and for everything to be normal again. But it's just not right now, and you know, and I think in in some ways that makes the storytelling more interesting, like these stories about the tennis players in their rooms like smacking balls off the walls of the Marriott or wherever, wherever they're sequestered and setting up little cones to do drills, you know, between the bathroom and the bed. It's, you know, it's, it's creative. And some of that storytelling is really interesting, but you know, it's, it's also interesting the first couple of times you do it. If we have to continue to do that kind of storytelling for the next six months, it's going to be a lot less interesting. The biggest story coming out of there uh, has been Yulia Putin-Seva and the fact that she was in a room with a mouse. So she demanded, she's, she did not want rodent-ridden situations for her quarantine. <laughs> so she called the front desk and they were and they had no rooms. Then they put her in another room and that one had a mouse. Or maybe it was the same mouse. So anyway, my my idea for that is that that, the, that hotel should sell itself. Their, their new motto should be, we're squeaky clean. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I, again, it's, it's tough and, and it's so global tennis. It's very hard to, there's a, a big tournament and, you know, the Indian Wells tournament, which is in the springtime, a beautiful tournament out in Palm Springs. It got canceled. It was one of the first sporting events to get canceled last year. And now this year they're trying to make it go. They're not going to have it at the same time. They're thinking of having it like week 41, 42 of this year. But that would that would start pushing the Asian swing back after the U.S. I mean, and and some people and the Indian Wells people want it to be a two week event, men and women. But the women have these other obligations. So they say, how about we have our one week event and then you can have the men's event. And they say, no, that's not what we want. It's all those kind of like the problems you, you listen to them, you think, oh, good God, this is it's so messy and complicated. And. Uh, yeah, I as I said, tennis in particular, I think is going to be a tricky one to to figure out well. Yeah, yeah. and you know, because everything's been so disjointed, um, I know Jane and I desperately, desperately want Serena Williams to break Margaret Court's <laughs> record. Desperately. Um, but I mean, it, it feels like it I makes it a little bit more. Once or twice. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it makes it a little bit more unlikely as much as we all want it because it's, you know, everything's sort of all over the place. And when you look at... Like again, I go back to the Olympics. I I went into the Olympics last year, and I'll come in again this year, 
feeling even more so that it's going to be the last Olympics for Venus, if she qualifies, for Serena, for Roger Federer, for Rafa Nadal. Like for And now they've missed a year. You know, I mean, to my mind, Roger Federer's best chance to win another big title was going to be the Olympics last summer or maybe this summer because it's only two out of three sets. It's not three out of five. And the guy's, you know, the guy's crowding 40 now. So is Serena. So for him to have missed that opportunity and for him to possibly miss it this year, that's a real pity. And, you know, aging athletes, I think I think it's fascinating just thinking about them and the Olympics. I mean, when you're 11 years old and you, you, you're training for the 2020 Olympics, that's what your coach is aiming you at. And all of us, and you, that's all your training blocks are that way and all your, all your work and all your, and now all of a sudden the 2020 Olympics doesn't exist. Um, so I, I would love to see Serena win another major. I keep, I, I, less and less, I feel like she can pull off seven wins in a row to win a Grand Slam title. But I don't know, I got it in my head. Her best shot, just like Rogers, would be uh, in Tokyo if the Olympics happens this year. It's, it's yeah, I mean, I, I felt, you know, after she reached, what was it, the, she came back, reached the fourth round at the French, and then reached the final at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. I, and at that moment, I thought she's getting this. I kept thinking the same thing, Jane. I every Those four finals she got to, I really thought she was a favorite every time. And she lost in straight sets every time. And now I'm, I, I think I'm, you know, and, and I, I would, I want her to win. Yes. For, because I think she's a great story, but also can we stop having to say Margaret Court's name? I'm so tired. She was, she's, she's not a fun story. She, you know, she's responsible for the Mother's Day massacre. You know, they're like all these things. You're still holding that on her? Is I that- am. I'm angry about it. Billie Jean King had to go in there and beat Bobby Riggs because Margaret Court couldn't handle her business in the Mother's Day Massacre. <laughs> Sad. Can, can we just, can I just remind your, your listeners that yes, Billie Jean had to mop up after Margaret, but that was in 1973. Other stuff has happened. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're referring to. <laughs> um, no, I, but Hey, actually I'm going to come full circle now because there was talk of course, after uh, that uh, Billie Jean King win against Bobby Riggs of uniting the ATP tour with a new women's tour. The, the men uh, very uh, congenially rejected that notion um, out of superiority. And now we come to, I think we're coming a little bit to a place where that's starting to be discussed a little bit more, the possibility of joining tours. I, you know, the, the events that are most exciting are the co-ed events, I think, and they do really well financially. Um, and I think during a pandemic, there's been more talk of that. you have any any thoughts on that, Mary? Well, I mean, Roger Federer tweeted out something last spring when the pandemic was just starting. And I, just, I thought it was actually disingenuous. He said, hey, I've got an idea. He said something like this. I've got an idea. Why don't the ATP and the WTA, and I'm there like, Raj, this is not the first time anyone has ever thought about this. I mean, Billie Jean King, when tennis went pro, Billie Jean wanted back then. She's wanted this since, you know, late 60s, early 70s, and she's talked about it forever. And Billie, De- Billie genuinely, and she's got a new book coming out, by the way, this fall. John Ed Howard's been writing it for a while. It's going to be good. 
Um, He's fantastic, Johnette, too. We love Johnette, another great American. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but Billy wanted it right at the beginning, and the men didn't want the women. They didn't, they didn't what? Why would we? Why would we share stuff with you? Why would we share sponsorship and airtime and everything? So the men have said no to the women genuinely since 1970. And so for God bless Roger Federer. Uh, he's, a, he's a terrific guy, but he didn't cook. And nothing really happened, by the way. The, nothing like there was no real traction on that. There are nice people saying stuff back and forth. And you're right, Jane, the, the, the best events, the most successful events, I should say, are the mixed events where men and women get to compete uh, at the same time in the same place. And let's face it, there aren't that many. There's maybe a dozen, maybe a dozen tennis tournaments in a calendar year that you know are going to turn a profit. The rest of them are right on the edge, right? On, and some of them are going to go away. The smaller events, the 250s, the 500, they're on life support now, you know, because the, for that, for those to happen, you still need either a TV deal or you pay a big name, a lot of money. You know, so now you're, and so I agree with you that it would be a great thing. Billie Jean thought about it a hell of a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And all this time later, I, you would think during the pandemic, that's when stuff should and could have happened. It didn't. <laughs> it, it, it certainly not in the ways I think it could. Because, and, and again, you know, men, they play in different places at different times of the year when they're not all together. I understand how complicated it is, but I think moving forward, it's it's going to still be very hard to pull off. So <clears throat> I'm going to wrap us up by asking one last question, which is, you know, like you've done so much in your career and, you know, with real sports, you get to do the investigative journalism and the feature writing, as well as kind of the, you know, the daily broadcast type journalism, um, the dog journalism uh which is so uh, valuable Most important yes and and i want what is what is next for you like what you know what is something that you where's what's the mountain you'd like to conquer that you haven't been able to do yet i always imagine you could be like you know the bob costas of the sports world for some network you know you to me have that kind of you're able to turn a phrase like that um I, I what I, do you see i i think bob is as good as it gets i'm a huge fan and admirer of, of Costas. And I think at a certain point, he just um, got a little arm weary for fighting some fights. You know, he had, he had decided that football was just too dangerous with all the, the head injuries and mm -hmm. all that. And, and, you know, this is a guy who wants, who really wanted to be true to himself and his values. Um, so I really admired, uh, I mean, he still does stuff for MLB and he does some other stuff and, and that's very cool. Um, but I don't, honestly, the, the reason I have said yes to so many things over the years, and again, tennis is the only sport I really know, but I'm curious about every other one. I love athletes. I love the athletic heart. I love, but honestly, I wanted to see the planet. A lot of times I said yes, just so I could go there. <laughs> I want, I really, yeah, I haven't been there. Wait, where you want me to? And like when I first started covering skiing, I had been to so many beautiful cities, great cities for tennis, just from playing to covering it. And now all of a sudden I'm in the Italian Alps. Oh man, this is a great, I like, and then I learned skiing, you know, which is probably a good idea, but so much of it has been that. And now travel has been taken away in large measure. Um, 
so uh, going forward, I'm still trying to honestly, I don't know the answer to that. I've got a real sports story coming out next week on uh, COVID long haulers and what the long haulers. And, and the interesting thing about that is with athletes, athletes, uh, I'm talking to two athletes right now. You want to tough it out. If you feel bad, the whole idea is, okay, I, uh, but these people are experiencing all manner of pain and problems, illnesses, lungs, hearts, blood clots, brain fog. You can't tough it out. You got you to gotta grab athletes by their ankles and say, look, you got you to you obey your body. So that's been a very interesting thing to cover. And I have a feeling I'll be doing more of those kind of stories remotely, um, which is also a different thing. I like, I like talking to somebody and, and, and really getting to know them. And, and, you know, you have to build up trust and you can do that best when you're a couple of feet away from somebody yeah. you know, and they see who you are and what you are and how curious you truly are. And, that all that stuff. So all of which is to say, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's coming next. I still like to travel, but I've got parents. Uh, my both my parents are in their nineties, and my granddaughter just turned one. So right now, like this year, I think I'm going to really hunker down and try very hard to see both of them as much as possible. And losing those two weeks of quarantining back and forth and all that. That's right now. My right now, my my daughter and her husband and my granddaughter live twenty minutes from me. I see that kid all the time. She's hilarious. She's <laughs> every day. She's got a new trick. You know, she's <laughs> she's just a really cool little baby. So at, right now, I think twenty twenty one is going to be pretty quiet for me until and unless things get a lot better, a lot quicker. Well, Mary, I mean, we can't wait to see you back at it. Um, I, I, I hope that we have an Olympics and, and for no other reason than I really want to see the sumo wrestling story <laughs> desperately. You will, learn, you will learn so much. Did my, you get to eat my for little it? Grasshopper. Did I what? Did you get to eat for it? I sat at the training table. I'll, I'll tell you one last story because I know you have to go. I'm at the training table of the all and there's all these tremendous mountains of men around this training table and they're scarfing down. It looks like, you know, uh, Hogwarts, you know, things are bubbling and <laughs> big, big you know, steaming, whatever, and a lot of rice. And, and I, and so, and I don't, my, my Japanese is not what it should be. And I'm talking to the captain of the sumo team and his English isn't anything. So we had this translator and as this guy is just piling on, I said, I, I thought, all right, you know, I'm going to ask the obvious question. So I said to him, so were you a big baby? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so the translator looks at me, thinks I'm about as unfunny as anyone she's ever met. So she goes through and asks this guy, who's also very unsmiling. And it was a long, complicated question, translation from a very short question of mine. And, and then he answers back. And now they're like fighting. They're warring over like, and they're going on and on in Japanese for like two minutes. And then finally she looks back at me and she says, he says, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was a successful interview. Some of them are better than others. Oh, amazing. Mary, we're so glad <laughs> that you were fun. able to join us. We're such huge fans. And uh, hopefully we get to see a lot more of you going forward. Everybody wear a mask. Get vaccinated so we can get Mary back to work. <laughs> Julie Jane, it's a pleasure. Congratulations on this. You got a good thing going. Thanks, Thanks. so much. Pleasure. Take care. Bye.
welcome back. That was a terrific interview with Mary Carrillo. She is absolutely one of my favorites and somebody who, you know, was always in the U.S. Open locker room um, and uh, press box and just kind of, you know, always there just chatting with people, like gathering information. She does her work as a reporter in addition to being really good when she's on the air. And I just, I have a ton of respect for that. Um, But we want to talk a little bit about um, a story that was an inside hook uh, by a reporter named Brittany de la Cretaz. And she is somebody who um, has done a little bit of, of writing about this topic, but she wrote about what it's like to compete at the high school level if you are a transgender boy. So oftentimes the reporting that's done on the issue of transgender people in sport is from the point of view of girls. And it's from the point of view of whether or not they should be competing and fairness in competition. And really the story is about girls who are biologically born girls and and whether it's fair to them, as opposed to the story being about the transgender person who is playing sports. And so that's why this story was so different. Um, Brittany really does get into this idea of what it's like, what it means for boys to be competing as boys and the acceptance that they get with their team and the issues from that point of view. And I just, I felt like this is some reporting that I really appreciated. It's, it's a, it's an inside hook. It's a little bit long, but it's worth it. And she really gets into all of the different, um, all the different stats behind, you know, some of the the stats about who's, who's playing where, um, whether people are allowed to play, what some of the legislation coming through is that could either make it more difficult or make it easier for trans players. And I, I just, I, I know you take a look at this, took a look at this as well. And I just, um, you know, I think it's important to, to realize that, that, um, you know, trans athletes can compete, um, and compete well. And, and that, and that sports means so much more than just whether or not you're winning whatever particular competition that you're playing in. Yeah, I think that's right. And it is a terrific article. Uh, Brittany is a terrific writer and reporter. Uh, yeah. And I mean, this goes back to the issue that we talked about with Martina, right? That I don't understand the fixation on, you know, making this a priority, whether it's a legislative priority or whether it's a, you know, reporting priority uh, from the, the from the sense that like this is some kind of scourge that is unfair to our daughters who are, you know, daughters of Title IX and should have, you know, it, that's you're not you're never entitled to being the best one out there. Right. I mean, there's always right. someone who's going to be better than you. I don't think this is something that is so prevalent that we need to be passing legislation to ban it. And yeah, I mean, we talked about the fact that looking at the number of trans women who are murdered on a regular basis, we're seeing it all the time, that this is a little bit of normalcy for these kids. And and can't we let them have it? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a terrific article. I recommend it to everybody. Um, and yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything you said. It's um, It comes from a different point of view. It's something that... Uh, I wish more people who are seem to be on the front lines and seem to care about this so much. Uh, the cis people who care about this for, for so much would will take a look at it and really be like, is this where we need to be spending our time? Let's yeah, get all of this out of sports. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, I, I raised this before, but my experience uh, when it came to, to trans athletes was actually playing against them in, mm-hmm. in roller derby. 
we didn't have any on our team, but we had played against plenty of, of women who were trans and it was never, it was never an issue. It was always fun. And it was, you know, again, I've never played at the level of Martina Navratilova. So I don't know what it's like to be at something where the margin between being first and second in the world at something is so thin. So I think for the great majority of people, it's about inclusion and it's about physical activity and, and community and play. And that to me is where we should be saying yes all the time. I just don't even see why and it should be an issue. And I, and I wish that more people would would uh, would read would read this story because I think it does kind of get you inside the head of somebody who is in high school and having you know and and having this identity assessment and what that process is like and how important it is. I mean, you and I remember what it was like to be a teenager in high school and to make you know be evaluating who you are and aspiring to be who you want to be. And uh, how lonely that feels. And I just, all of that would be compounded. And if you just take 10 seconds to identify here, I think that it's um, it's easy to understand why sports would be so important. Um, and especially, we you know, we have so many ideas of, of boys and masculinity and, and so much of that reinforcement, that community reinforcement, that gender community reinforcement. Um, I mean, that's important for boys, just like it's important for girls and to be able to have it in this context. It's, it's something interesting. I enjoyed the perspective. I enjoyed that there was a story written about it. I would love to see more like this. And I would love to see these perspectives become part of our national conversation when it comes to whether or not trans athletes should be playing, which shouldn't even be a conversation because the answer should be yes. And I don't understand right. why we're setting up barriers. But at the same time, there are people who want to set up barriers and they should need to see these perspectives. So it's not scary. No one's trying to take anything from you. Just want inclusion and play whenever possible. Yeah. And, you know, I think of, you know, back to the issue of uh, how big of a problem is this really? We don't see, I, I mean, the Olympics are, I mean, people would sell their arm to make it to the Olympics, right? And to be able to compete in the Olympics. I mean, if you're an amateur athlete in, you know, 50 sports, the Olympics are the end all be all for you. And, we don't see a bunch of trans women just kicking everyone's ass. And you know what I mean? Like the only athlete I know who's competing at that level is Chris Mosier, who's a trans man. Right. So well, I mean, that's the, that's the point is that the, there are also a lot of assumptions about whether biologically born women would ever be able to compete against biologically born men. And, and the answer is yes. <laughs> so right. I mean, again, you know, I think we have in sports this idea that that men and women are different universes of competition when actually it's, it's all a range, you know, some men are not as good as some women, some, you know, some women are never going to be as good as the best men. But, you know, I, like, for example, the, the experience that I've had of play my adult life has been mostly playing with men other than roller derby. I played a lot of pickup basketball and it was always, almost always all men and never had, you know, I didn't have a problem the basketball didn't get bigger. The hoop didn't get farther away. I wasn't, start, you know, I mean, and that's the experience I think that a lot of women have of playing with men. And a lot of men have of playing with women if you play in yeah. softball or the, lots of leagues. And so I just, this idea that we must be strictly segregated, that that any kind of um, co-ed play is somehow unfair to somebody is, I mean, I just, I, we've, we're so wrapped up in these ideas of maleness and femaleness and what that means that we don't actually see what we're missing sometimes by doing it this way. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a great point. Like we're not talking necessarily 
Michael Phelps versus Katie Ledecky, like the best man versus the best woman. You know, I mean, Katie Ledecky laps guys in their practices. I mean, you're right. There are some women who are better than men. Maybe we should be putting our time and energy into making sure that everybody in this country who wants to play sports gets the chance to play sports. Yes. And instead of figuring out, instead of gatekeeping about who's allowed to do this, you know, I was thinking back to my high school soccer team and, and high, you know, like women, when they're really competitive in a group like that, I think sort of have this like attitude of like, okay, just bring it on. You know, that was always my experience playing in, in a group, uh, in a team sport like that. And I was just thinking like, if, if we had been playing a team in the playoffs or something in the state playoffs and they had said, oh, well, they have a boy on their team. We wouldn't have been like, oh, that's unfair. We would have been like, all right, who's going to, who's going to take the guy, you know I mean? Right. It's just, exactly. it's not. Like, I feel like the adults are more worried about this than the kids are. A hundred percent. Like, you know, in this, and you still have in this day and age where if there's an elite, you know, let's say elite soccer team where, you know, where a girl would be good enough for it, but, and there isn't another elite soccer team for girls in the area, but she could make the boys team. And then there's this whole controversy about whether or not she should be allowed to, like, let's just let everybody play. Okay, let's just let everybody play. The gender thing is not the most, the most important question is not, are you a girl or are you a boy? The most important question is, do you want to play on this team? Right. You know what I mean? It's just, it should be that simple. I, I get, I get very, so anyway, so I think, you know, unfortunately, I think we've come to be so preoccupied with these ideas of gender in sport that we, we, that we are setting up barriers to play for, for boys and for girls. And uh, it's unnecessary. And it says a lot more about us than it does about people who want to play sports. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So anyway, good article. Check it out. um, Because it may make you think a little bit differently about things and certainly get you in somebody else's shoes. For sure. For sure. And I'm glad you brought it up because it's a good conversation to have. Um, You know, we should get Chris on this show get Chris Mosier on and let him talk about what it's like to compete at that level as a trans athlete and then see if people change their mind. I'm going to work on that. Chris, if you're listening. Yeah. Chris, if you're listening. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, Give us a call. Also, uh, I just want to n- let it be known before we leave that I have done this entire show with two sleeping dogs on the bed, <laughs> precariously balancing all of my podcasting equipment on my lap, on a pillow, and they have not moved. So we're we're one mailman away from completely destroying Absolutely. this show. The fact that Amazon hasn't come to the door during this show <laughs> to completely throw this thing into, you know, chaos has been a miracle. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. We yeah, should... I mean, I spent, so my husband's on a call downstairs. My kid is in school on his laptop and I'm sitting here doing this. So the fact that A, the Wi-Fi has been stable and B, the dogs haven't gone crazy. It's nothing short of a miracle. We we should probably shouldn't push the envelope in this situation then. No. So so we're going to cut it off. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope that you'll give us a follow at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. Hey, if you like the show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe and rate. We will be back next week here in the ladies' room.